You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Psalms 39. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. So long as the wicked are in my presence, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and in my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. O oh Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. That is the word of the Lord. Okay, now, maybe somebody here is from Caldwell, you know, Caldwell is where my kids go to school, and that is a teacher teaching device for getting kids to listen. And whether it's a classroom of 18 or 20 or an auditorium full of 350 people, it's amazing how the cacophony of children talking is at once silence, and all children come into unison, and then, okay, you guys are a little slow on the uptake, but what... <clears throat> but that's what happens, and then, every, and then everything is silent. So here is the beginning of what is four weeks of a study of different psalms. The psalm I chose is Psalm 39, and it's a tough psalm. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a tough psalm. And one of the things that makes it so tough is that we don't read these psalms and say, well, isn't that interesting? Well, it must have been a uh, tough situation David found himself in. You know, you know, we don't read these psalms at a distance. When you sing the songs on Sunday morning, Christopher did a great job of choosing a lot of hymns. When you sing the songs on Sunday morning, what you are doing is recalibrating your own heart. You don't just sing the hymns uh, and say, oh, isn't that an interesting melody? You know, like I did before I was a Christian. I would just sing along and, oh, we're sing we all know these songs and they're so great and don't we sound good together? No, no, no. 
This is a rehabituation, that is, rehabiting of the affections of your heart toward the one who has loved you in Christ. And so these songs are uh, a way in which we can find voice to speak what is sometimes unspeakably painful, what is sometimes unspeakably distressing, and that is the cruciform life that so often characterizes the life of a Christian, wherein, time after time, things are taken from you. You uh, find relinquishment that God is, like we've said before, that God is prying your life year by year, moment by moment, discouragement by discouragement. He is prying your life from your own hands. And then you go to the cross and your life is characterized more by the life of Jesus in whom you live and move and have your being. So, this psalm brought to mind one of the saddest things I ever saw in my life. Something that spoke to me more profoundly than any scripture ever did when I was eight years old in 1984, when I finally saw a movie released in 81, when it came on one summer day on HBO. I sat down to watch Superman 2. Now, Superman 2 at that time was the quintessential movie. And for me, now I realize there is a piece of Superman 2 that is so deeply upsetting. Still, the idea that for Lois Lane, Superman would enter into this sort of case, right? He puts his hands on the glass, you guys have seen it, and he gives up his power and becomes only Clark Kent. He relinquishes his power, and then they go and have a honeymoon in Buffalo. <laughs> they shuffle off to Buffalo. And then a Buffalo diner, after having given up his power for romantic love with Lois Lane, this happens. Oh boy, it's Mr. Wonderful. Cheeseburger with everything on it, and a Coke, and order of fries, and a side salad. Oh, um, I'll think about it when I get back. Right. Thinking life is going to be great. Here I am. That's my lady. That's my wife. Yeah, come right up. Sorry, that's his take. It is now, sweetheart. I buy something. No, thank you. Uh, Excuse me, sir. I think you're sitting in my seat. Your seat's in there for I. Ah. Gee, I think perhaps somebody ought to teach you some manners, sir. Yeah? Well, let me know when it comes up. Look, Clark, we can just... Honey, this was so devastating when I was eight. Excuse this me, sir, would you so care to step outside? Upsetting. I said, excuse me, sir, would you care to step outside? <laughs> now, listen, Rocky, your steak's coming right up. Keep it on the flame, Rock. This is just a minute steak. After you. Mark! 
be fine. Just give me mm -hmm. that. You're still pathetic. Blood? It's my blood. Oh, it's uh, blood. Hey. Oh, no. Maybe you ought to hire a bodyguard from now on. I don't want a bodyguard. I want the man I fell in love with. I know that, Lois. I wish you were here. He's gone now. Oh, yes. Now I'm going to get him. Mmm. Clark! Oh, no, I won't take any more of that from you, buddy. Boy, you just don't have enough sense to stay down, do you? can't do anything. He tried to fight for himself, but he couldn't. He'd given up his power. Now, I didn't want to, can you raise the lights a little bit so we can see everybody again? I, I, I didn't want to see that. That was very upsetting. What I wanted to see was David Banner. Remember David Banner in the, uh, the 1980s Incredible Hulk show? Everybody, I see the men going, oh yeah, like this. Because you know what? There's a moment Maybe it happens twice. Sometimes you only get it once, but it's the moment when after getting abused, something like uh, uh, Clark Kent here got abused, David Banner says, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And you know what's coming next. They push him a little bit further, and he, and the, you know, the, he turns to the camera, and the, the strings go, you know, over the top, and the eyes turn red, and then, you know, and he hawks out, and then he just decimates those who were distressing him, who didn't understand that they wouldn't like him when he was angry. And so, this is what I want to say to you today. That is the preferred method. Something uh, spoke deeply to me when I heard, oh, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, because each of us likes to think that once really provoked, we can stand for ourselves. And we can speak for ourselves. That's not what David does. King David gives this psalm, this song, to Judithan. Judithan, anybody know how to say this word? Judithan? It's a short, uh, short, short way to say it is Ethan. He is one of three song masters, choir masters, uh, song leaders in the temple. Now, historians have found that he might, he probably came from Bethlehem as well, perhaps grew up alongside David. David, also a musician and a singer who would, remember, he would uh, allay uh, Saul's heavy mind uh, with music and the harp. Judithan came from uh, a string family and was given the lofty role of leading the people in worship at the temple. And this song was a way in which David could speak his own heart and the heart, remember his heart was after God, you know, and also give the people a way to understand themselves and to consequently understand God. And so he gives the song to him, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm a worship leader. What if somebody gives me a song and says, you should do this song on Sunday? You know, the thing I want to do for you all is to make sense of it. 
So what I'm going to do today is make sense of this song. It starts like this. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Now, does he say this to God? No. He says this to himself. This is somebody reasoning with himself. This time, I'm going to guard my tongue. Now, how and why does he say to himself what ultimately is a very wise thing to say? I will guard my ways. It's my understanding, at least my uh, 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 experience, that any wisdom I've ever had is because I've already had face-to-palm moments. I remember the time when I didn't guard my way, the time when I didn't muzzle my mouth. Experience has shown me this is the wise path. Jim Croce, the poet, one of my favorite singers, in his sort of jive language, sings in a song called Careful Man. He says, I don't gamble, I don't fight, I don't be hanging around them bars at night. Oh, I used to be a fighter, but now I am a wiser man. And then he goes on with the second verse. I don't drink much. I don't smoke. I don't hardly be messing around with no dope. I used to be a problem, but now I am a careful man. Now, I like that song because it speaks to what he used to do, but now who he is. He's honest about both. So here is David saying, I'm going to guard my ways. I'm going to muzzle my mouth because I've seen when I didn't. <laughs> so how do we muzzle our mouths? We have a friend, I have a friend who told me, he said, I was on vacation. It was one of these family vacations, you know, not, not like close family vacations, but extended family vacations. These things are not good. I mean, maybe you get, a, you know, a, the first hour or two to hug people, but before long, things start to really break down. So he's at the dinner table. His brother is there, his grown brother and his sister and his parents and, of course, his wife and children. And he's thinking, this is a nice time. Let me make people laugh. Let me share a self-deprecating story about myself. So he shares this self-deprecating story. I won't tell you what it is. Uh, and the older brother says, you did what? That was so stupid. How could you do that? Now, maybe the older brother, he's having a problem. He's having a rough day, and he's fallen back into that old way, maybe, that he was when he was eight or nine, the way he used to keep his little brother under his thumb. And now in front of, you know, my buddy's wife and his parents and, you know, the whole family, you're going to tell me I'm stupid? But my buddy goes, he goes, dude, really? You did that? Stupid. Wow. I can't believe you did that. And the third time, he goes, I can understand how you could see that that was stupid, being that you've made so many bad decisions in your life. Did I just say that? And then what has he done? He has entered into the tit for tat, back and forth, toilet bowl futility that characterizes the old kingdom apart from Christ, where the ego is aroused, and I'm going to speak for myself. He hulked out right there in front of everybody, and things didn't go well. But here is David saying, I'm going to guard my ways. 
I'm going to muzzle my mouth so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. Did things get better for David? No. I held my peace even from good, the NIV says. Even from good. It would have been good. I want to sting them. I want to tell them that they're wrong. I want to tell them that that is not me anymore. And you can't talk to me that way. And how dare you in front of my wife. I want to fight for myself. But I don't. Because it never goes well. And so what happens? And then what happens? David says, my heart became hot within me. As I mused, my heart became hot within me. And then I spoke with my tongue. Now, does he speak with his tongue to the people that he was mute in front of? No. Now, the direction of the psalm goes, it's like a, it's like a, 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 a verse, and now we get a bridge. It's kind of changed a little bit. Now the direction is no longer, this is the thing that I did. Okay? Now, it's, he turns vertically. And now he's going to petition the Lord. He's going he's to petition the Lord and he's going to say, I spoke with my tongue. Okay? He's going to say, oh Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Okay, so this is interesting. So now he does speak, but instead of speaking when he knows he ought not, he speaks when he should. We had a friend in Connecticut. Jeannie was her name. And she would always say, girl, I don't know why she did that. She didn't even have that accent. It was more, I don't know what it was that about. It just sounded, I'm going to do it that way. She'd say, girl, go to the throne, not the phone. Go to the throne, not the phone. Now, this was in 2002 when she would say this. And I said, you know, that makes a lot of sense. But how much more sense does it make now with Facebook? Oh, my gosh. People go to the phone, don't they? And you see it, you, you, you see it, and you look at it, and you say, these people are stupid. These people are crazy. Who would say that? You ever hear somebody, like, totally, like, just air it out? Just say something, just, you're going, oh, my gosh, I wouldn't say that to anybody in person, much less speak it out into the universe on, this, on the web where everybody can comment on it and back and forth. It's embarrassing. And people do it all the time. Why? Because their ego is aroused and they're looking for control. They're trying to hulk out. And if they can't hulk out in person, they hulk out here, right here. I'm gonna, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 sometimes I see something uh, that somebody pays, uh, posts on Facebook and I write, oh, no, you didn't. You don't speak that. That is not true. And then I hit delete. And that's what you should do. Because you don't want to enter into that thing. It goes nowhere, but they're going to continue. It's going to continue to, your life is going to continue to arouse your flesh, and you're going to get hot. And what do you do? You go to the throne and not the phone. He says, oh, Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. I need perspective. I'm so, I want to fight. I want to fight, but I need perspective. I need to understand that my life is 80 years old, maybe 65 if I keep eating the way. I, I, you know, 
that, that I'm not good. I'm only going to have 65, maybe 80 years. And we're talking about the beginninglessness, alpha and omega, the timelessness of God. Comparing our life to God's, it's apples to oranges. It's nothing. We're a gnat. We're a gnat. But we want to fight like we are God. And that's what the ego causes us to do. It causes us to protect ourselves and to make sure that people are thinking good of us and that we hang on to what gives us a sense of sturdiness in this world. And it's always, always faith by walking by sight, not by faith, you see. But this is what, this is what David does here. Let me know how fleeting I am. Let me see that I'm... I'm just a vapor. It says, behold, you have made my day a few hand breaths. I'm just passing through. And don't you want to be, I love an elegant person. Do you love elegant people? Elegant people just, I mean, I don't, you know, some would say, oh, this is really snooty, but I love a man that can just, you know, it's not phased. It's okay. It's okay. This is not me. I want it to be me. It's not. But I want it to be. I want to be an elegant person. I want to, I want to just glide through life. You know? I mean, I, I, was, even, I was even speaking earlier to outside. They said, well, you did, you did a great job in that first sermon. And I said, you know, I said, I, I, I got to be honest. Even my ego, as I preach, I want to do good. And isn't it interesting? Like, I want to do good for you all and for myself. I want you to think well of me. But that can be even inhibiting. That is even driven by the ego. And he goes, well, don't you think, you know, in the long run that God's really got it? I say, yes, I think that theoretically. But in the moment, I'm, con I'm obsessed with performance. And this is, the, this is the human condition. So what do we have here? We have a song that reminds us who we are. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Okay, now he's figured out something, hasn't he? In the course of the psalm, he has figured out that whether it be 65 or 80 or 95, maybe Willard Scott talks about me at 110, it's still nothing compared to the expanse, the beginningless, timelessness, hugeness of God. So what are we fighting for. And then we have Selah. Sometimes it's easy to pass over that. Clint didn't read, read it. I'm not dogging on you, Clint. But it's easy to pass over that. What does that mean? Okay. Tom Petty says, with the verses, don't bore us. Get to the chorus. You know what I'm saying. There's that tension when you're listening to a song and you know the chorus is coming and you really want to sing it out while you're driving in your car. You want the chorus. Well, here's the chorus. And now he changes from speaking to God to reasoning aloud. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Okay, so it probably wasn't like that in the Hebrew. But it was a sung chorus. And you see here, you can imagine little Solomon, David's son. He hears this language. Surely a man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. The truth of what King David spoke transferred to Solomon, and later Solomon would write, I can work my whole life for a fortune, amass a fortune, and give it to some kid who screws it away in six months. 
gives it all gives it all away in six months. I cannot control others. I cannot control what they will do with the thing that I have done. And there's a sense of relinquishment here, isn't there? I go about as a shadow. I, it's, everything that I do, surely for nothing we're in turmoil. Why do we worry? New York City, I go back, and it's too upsetting. After living there for many years, I go back, and would you believe that at LaGuardia, there's not a welcoming committee? That they don't roll out the carpet at Rockefeller Center and say, you're back! We missed you, man! You know why? Because I was a shadow there. New York City didn't need me at all, and even though I passed those many profound years there for my wife and I, it's too crushing to my ego to revisit the city and recognize, who are you? Who are you? I can't handle it. I don't want to go back to New York. We will, but I don't really want to. But here's the thing. <laughs> we don't have anything really to hang on to. We don't have anything to hang on to. Not that we can see anyway. And so he asks, as we return back to a verse, he goes back and directs his attention to the Lord. And now, my Lord, for what do I wait? Of course, this is a, this is a rhetorical question. I wait for nothing. Why? Because I have a hope in you. My hope is in you. Tim Keller says, what you believe about your future, listen, what you believe about your future changes you presently. We are a people who, once we fix our hope on something, it becomes manifest either in anxiety and angst or sadness or discouragement or hope and freedom and peace and ease and elegance. My hope is in you. Don't miss this. What does he say next? Deliver me from all my transgressions. We say out loud that we love Jesus. But if we love Jesus in the spirit all the time, we would not sin. Functionally, we love our lives way more than we love Jesus. And until we understand that, we don't, we're not as receptive of his grace. And we don't grow in the gratitude that the gospel promises in the generosity that the gospel promises, in the compassion that the gospel promises. As long as we love our own lives more, well, then we're going to be back like David saying, deliver me from all my transgressions. Martin Luther wrote, simul justus et peccator. This is the Latin uh, phrase for simultaneously saint and sinner. That the way God looks at me, from God's perspective, I am a saint because I am clothed in his son. But from my perspective toward God, I have to stay cognizant that I need deliverance from my transgressions. I need deliverance from my sins. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Well, what's he asking here? He's saying, deliver me from the rotten fruit of my unbelief. Do you know? I mean, this is really, when do you go to God? What does it say? There, there's no atheists in the foxholes? Do you know? When, when, you, when your life, when the stupid decisions, when the ego-driven decisions of your life create hell on earth for you, where can I turn but to the Lord? 
This happens again and again and again. And so we say, I was mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. So now he's saying, I was mute. I, I did the thing, but really I recognized that it was you who was doing it in me that was giving me the Holy Spirit-driven muzzle to not speak when I wanted to defend myself. It was you who did it. I love my friend Philip who would always pray, Lord, Father, would you do this thing? And when you do, we will be sure to give you the glory. Pray that way. Pray that way, and, and you can, you'll find a cleansing of those ego-driven desires that sometimes infest and infect your prayer life. And instead, there'll be a purification. And you will say, Lord, when you do it, I will give you the glory. He says, remove your stroke from me. Gosh, Lord, would you let up? I've done some really, really stupid things, and I know that I deserve all of this, but I need you to ease up. See, the physics of life is this. When I do A and B, I get C, and C sucks. It hurts, and I don't want C in my life. I need you to deliver me from that which I actually deserve. He says, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Now, when you understand this, you'll see the power of Christ in your marriage. You'll see the power of God causing you to let go of that predisposition to always be right to always have the last word. You know there is no last word in the old kingdom. There is only, oh yeah? Well, oh yeah? Well, oh yeah? It's just this and this and this. We see this in our politics. I mean, I don't, I don't have to get very far into this, but it's just, a, it's just a lot of back and forth. It's a bunch of nonsense. It's people worrying about things that are not uh, eternal. They're just fighting for themselves. They're just speaking up when they need to shut their mouths. We see this on both sides, incidentally. I think I need to say that. You see an AA. You see, deliver me. My life has become unmanageable. I need a higher power to restore me to sanity. What is this? Removing all of this excess ego in my life that is causing me to hold on and cling and constrict and paralysis in my relationships. I, I was going to say this earlier. You take yourself too seriously? If you take yourself seriously, here's the promise. You'll lose relationship. You'll lose relationship. You'll be offended. Your ego will be aroused when people don't give you your just, give you the thing that you expect from them. And, and things will just begin to disintegrate relationally. But what's the promise from Christ? Streams of living water. As we go cruciform and we assimilate, consciously assimilate onto the cross, we relinquish our life and his Holy Spirit moves through us. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. That's it. That's your life. He said that again. He's really figuring this out now. And then, Selah. Tim Keller calls these part, this part of the of the Psalms, the Jesus 
the Psalms of Jesus. Okay? Here is the song again. This is the chorus. Here we go. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace from my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. <sighs> Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. I'm in the dirt, and I don't have anything left. The gospel is not the rope wherein you get to the top and ring the bell and say, I made it, God! That's religion, religion. That's tying back to God. Christ has finished that. You are at the bottom of the rope, lifeless, unable to climb. Instead, resting in the one who has already climbed on your behalf. Paul Zoll says the gospel must, must be experienced from the ground up. I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Now in this time, I'm thinking of myself as a little tiny kangaroo in the pouch of the mother, you know, and I'm just, I'm just in the pouch looking and, 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 and I'm being carried by another. I'm being carried by another, by a God who loves me. I'm being, you know, I was, I was, a, I was a, um, uh, a freshman in high school, and Justin Meyer, Justin Meyer must have got held back in second or third grade. I really don't know. But when I was a freshman, while only sophomores, when you're 16 in Oklahoma, you get your driver's license, Justin was 16 when we were freshmen. Blessed day he had a car. We didn't have to ride with our parents anymore. But anywhere I went, unless it was with my parents, it was in Justin's ride. And you never saw so many smelly kids pack into an Eldorado. It was unbelievable. We looked like a circus car when we'd pile out of that thing. Anywhere I was going, I was going with Justin. Anywhere you go with Christ, you do not go with your ego. You move in him, in his finished work, in his perfect obedience. Before I depart and am no more. We are no more. Hidden in Christ, who never opened his mouth. Who was always one with the Father and never needed to protect an ego. Okay, so I want to move now to a Jesus application. I want to see this psalm and I want to see Christ as the true and better David. We go to John 8. 40 and 50. You see, we're in search of a mic drop, aren't we? You know, this is kind of the, in the modern parlance. Like, we want to say, boom, I said it, peace. But that's not possible. Because there's always somebody with a wittier comeback. Yeah, it's old kingdom thinking, yes. Getting the last word. Look at what Jesus does. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. You are doing the works your father did, they said to him. This is the Pharisees after he healed the blind man. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. 
Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is, be it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. What was that word? Quickly. You're a vapor. You cannot speak because you have no leg to stand on but you instead are whitewashed tombs thinking you can speak. You are the father, <clears throat> you are of your father, the devil. Oh, did he just tell the Pharisees that their father was the devil? <sighs> and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. I also said native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You're crazy as hell. That's what they said to Jesus. You're crazy and you have a demon living in you and you're completely off base. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Throughout the expanse of John, what we see is Jesus not speaking for himself, but speaking the words that are given to him. He is a vessel. He is a completely open, unclotted vessel. There is no ego in him, and consequently he can receive the words of God and speak. In that, those days, a testimony in court by one person wouldn't cut it. You'd have to have two people. Well, Jesus did one better. He's got three people. I cannot be on this stage and lead music for you all and not have somebody singing harmony. Oh, blessed harmony. Isn't it nice? Isn't it just great? Jesus is in perfect unison with the Father. Everything he speaks is harmony. That to which we are attached, we are bound to serve. We are worshiping a God other than the one true God. And I want to tell you now, to get back to what we were talking about, is this, when one of three things, or all three things, is threatened, you will want to speak. And if you speak, if you speak to defend yourself, you're not speaking the language of God. You're in the league of the devil. Three things. The devil is crafty, but he is not creative. He never created one thing, but he twists everything. Three things, treasure, measure, or pleasure. Another has said passion, position, or possession. So to get to where we go, we're going, we have to go back to the beginning. Genesis 3, Eve notices three very true things about the fruit. Three very true things. The fruit was beautiful. 
What a possession. What a possession, this beautiful, whatever, I don't know, I can't imagine what it was, but it looked good. Looked good to the eyes. What a treasure, possession, a treasure. She noticed another thing. She noticed that the fruit was tasty. Passion, pleasure. I am called in my family sometimes the pleasure baron. I love a great glass of wine. I love a tasty steak. I want to experience the transcendent. Is this desire in Eve evil? No. Were her eyes evil that she noticed the fruit was beautiful? No. The third thing, the fruit would lead to wisdom. Also, very true, and it was very good of her to see that. But this fruit was forbidden. She was in a garden of God's providing, his timing. All three things were true, but because it was forbidden, all three things were harnessed by Eve to fulfill, feed, and fortify her and Adam. After the fall, this bride, she was not in white. She was naked and afraid. She was clothed in sin, deception. And this groom, Adam, he was nowhere around when all this was going down, was he? He, was, he proved himself to be a buck passing, responsibility-shirking fool. And thus, you have the rest of the pathetic story of humanity. Striving to find wholeness again apart from the only one who could give it. With stealing, control, jealousy, envy, flesh, arousal, you name it. Where was the promise? Where was hope? They were dead. They were completely dead. We were dead on a cross. The garden had become a desert, relationally. Where there was flourishing, there was now thorns and thistles. But east of Eden, in a desert, it's recorded in Matthew 4, Jesus did not speak for himself in the temptation. He allowed the word of God to speak for him. And he spoke to those which would arouse his flesh. In my estimation, it was the temptation of Jesus that helped him to see that he would go to the cross. Because he said, nope, it's not going to be this way. It's not going to be this way. And it's not going to be this way. It's got to be this way. And that temptation, from there, he began his earthly ministry. I'm going to tell you three ways that God spoke. Jesus didn't speak. God spoke. Three ways. When he told, when, when the tempter told Jesus to feed himself, turning rocks into stones, he replied, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of the Father. Whose words are those? God's. He spoke to passion. Next, he spoke to position. When he could wow the masses, he was tempted to wow the masses and rule in power by jumping from the top of the temple to certain death, resting on the promise that God would save him. He replied, it is written, you shall not test the Lord your God. He was not going to fall into position. He was not going to be glorified apart from the Father. Finally, he spoke to possession. God spoke to possession through Christ when told he could have the whole world if he would but bow at the feet of the tempter and worship him, he replied, away with you, devil. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
by not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather making himself a servant, he relinquished ego and God spoke through him. Jesus proved he was the Christ. We all want to be gods in our own lives, and that's why we sin. That's why we deserve separation from God. But Christ overcame ego in the desert, defeating the ways in which the flesh might be aroused for him to save himself from what was the will of the Father in his life. And you notice then when he goes on into his, into his ministry, you know, like Peter would say, oh, may it not be, Lord, after he was talking about being crucified. And what does he say? Get away from me, Satan, because he remembers the voice in the desert now coming present through the Holy Spiritless Peter. He remembers it. He was fortified in the desert, and he knew the way forward. And the glorification would come not through his glory, but through crucifixion. Jesus knew the length of his days. What does David pray? Show me the length of my days. Show me how long, show me that I'm just a vapor. Had Christ clung to his life, he would not have been the obedient son on the cross. But he knew the length of his days. Throughout John we hear, and Jesus knew his time had not yet come. Why? Because he knew his days. He knew the length of his days. He had peace in his heart, and he had trust that in this life, in this 32-year life, he was but a vapor. No one had the capacity to understand that Jesus was not one, but he was three in one. Filled with the Spirit, he experienced total unity always with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He always spoke in a chorus of holiness. On the way to the cross, the only one who could defend himself never said a mumbling word. He took on our defenselessness and spoke not a word. Isaiah says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silence, so he opened not his mouth. He was the Holy One of God. He could have defended himself. He could have hulked out. He could have said, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. But he would not have been the Christ had he done so. Now, what do we need in our life? We need the cross. We need conscientious assimilation with the cross of Christ that God would allow us to relinquish our life and stop holding on because that's what kills relationship. That's what causes sin. That's what causes and creates and exacerbates suspicion between our shoulders when in Christ we are one body. But we resist it in three ways. We resist the cross in our life by speaking on our own behalf, please go to the throne, not the phone. We resist the cross by, allow, by refusing to allow Christ's work on the cross to be the final word, the last word. In the new kingdom, there is a last word. And it is spoken. And it was good. And it was finished. And there need, we need not speak for ourselves anymore because our justification doesn't lie in our reputation. Our justification doesn't lie. Our peace doesn't lie in our position, our passion, our possessions. It lies in the finished, final, last word of God. He was the word, the word made flesh. In the flesh, we are undeniably captive. Uh, third, 
We resist the cross by thinking passion, position, and possession can add to our power to speak for ourselves. They cannot. In the flesh, we are undeniably captive to our hearts. And that's when we're determined to protect our passion, position, and possession. And that is why every day, heart transplant must occur. And for the Christian, hear this, please, if you hear nothing else, hear this. The word of the gospel is that heart transplant, whether you feel it or not, has already occurred. It's not dependent on your feelings. It's not really even dependent on your understanding of it. It's depending on your receptivity. And you have, some, you have to get to the end of your rope. The gospel must be experienced from the ground up. For the Christian, it has already occurred, but it is a purely spiritual reality. And the recognition of it depends solely upon the Spirit's opening your eyes to it, causing you to relinquish your life. I remember a hot day in July in Oklahoma City when I was in college and I was still, well, I was more of a fool than I am now. Let me say it that way. I was looking for something to hang on to. And I started listening to sports talk radio. I said, now this is interesting. Look at how they argue. I mean, you, anybody that knows me, I don't even know sports. I, I don't know anything about sports. But I, I went and I started listening to sports talk radio because I liked the way they went back and forth. And so one day I got up the nerve. Remember when you used to do that? Got up the nerve. Sports Talk Radio, hey, it's Matt, you're, you're, you're on the air now. Matt, Matt, and I went. <laughs> I couldn't talk. You know like Darth Vader's minions, you know when they tell him something he doesn't want to know, like Luke Skywalker got away again, and he's like, what? And they're like, <laughs> you can't speak. You can't speak before the holy God. You can't speak a word before God because you're sinful. You don't understand yourself. I don't understand myself. And so I do things out of that utter confusion. I need someone to speak on my behalf. Someone that can, and there was only one. There was only one ever that could speak on my behalf. The law is over. Religion is gone. It's done. It could never work because you can't speak for yourself. Because you can't, you can't harness yesterday's achievements for today's peace. It's not possible. Jesus knows that we are mute before the law. But like fools, we just talk on and on and on. Trying to defend ourselves. Trying to be right. You ever try to have an argument with your husband or your wife? When one wins the argument, you both lose. You both lose because you're back in that old kingdom death that will not produce anything but rotten fruit. He's spoken on our behalf when we could not. He has become the new kingdom's last word. He is the creative power of God made flesh, spoken, spoken into the world. A new Adam, a groom who is present, who received the blow on behalf of the mute spouse, that the bride might be clothed in the spotlessness of this groom. 
He is the word, the last word. Let him speak. Now you just listen to him, and that's it. Okay, so this is the last, uh, this is the last Sunday, or the first Sunday of the month we do communion uh, down here. If you're new to Bethel, if you're just coming today, um, we have to say, I'll invite the band to come back up if they're, if, they're in the, if they're in the room, that this is a way God continues to speak to us through the sacraments of baptism and, and through communion. And it's an odd, strange thing. I found a quote yesterday in a book called The Mystery of Christ and Why We Don't Get It by Robert Farrar Capon. He says this, Consider the scene in church on a Sunday. Here are a bunch of people more or less dressed to the nines in an expensive building and maybe very spectacular music. Maybe. And even a paid choir, not here, but some places. Deliberately celebrating the worst thing, deliberately celebrating the worst thing the human race, which includes all of them, has ever done. The murder of God incarnate. They've taken the rottenest thing that ever happened and reinstalled it in their lives as a joyful remembrance. They haven't run away from evil. They've actually made it the centerpiece of their celebration. They've taken what should have caused only alienation, and by the pardon that flows from it to them, they've turned it into a festival of reconciliation. We do nothing, nothing less than that now when we celebrate the broken body, broken by sin. He who be, knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The broken body and the poured out blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I had a talk with my seven-year-old the other day and after she had taken the communion and we had a very meaningful moment uh, in which I believed that she got it. Uh, she told me the following week, it was just bread and juice. And I said, well, you're right, but it's symbolic. And she said, yeah, but it's a tiny symbol. You see, she's fighting. She's fighting to be right. She's fighting to bring this unthinkable, unimaginable reality of the death of the Son of God at our hands down to something she could understand. I said, you're right. It's a tiny symbol of a massive reality that you can only understand by the power of the Holy Spirit. What we ask down here is that you've not been granted to see that, wait. This is something we do in the family of God, having collectively ascribed to the veracity of the claims of the word. Take a moment down here. Instead of passing out the elements, we're going to allow you to go to one of these three tables on your way out and take the communion. Take the bread, take the juice, and feed on it by faith in your hearts. Allow God's final word of love in Christ Jesus, of justification in Christ Jesus, of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Allow it to rest in your being. Feed on it by faith. Take a moment. Pray with your family.
ask God to reveal that which is inhibiting the flow of his Holy Spirit, the streams of living water, those clots. Ask him to reveal it. And then trust that Christ has spoken on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this reality into which, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you have woven us. You've opened the eyes of your children to recognize that we could not attain your love, but your love has been given to us freely, freely to us at great cost to your son. Yes, it's a tiny symbol, but it's a massive reality. And Lord, we ask, we ask you to open us, open us to a life in you, a life where we relinquish the desire to stand on our own two feet and defend ourselves, but instead live through your death, your resurrection, your ascension, and the gift of your Holy Spirit. May we be in unison with you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.